the title of the message today is actually, we're in the Revelation series still, and we're coming towards the very end, and the title of the message today is The Divine Banquet. Um, I thought this week, as I studied for my message of all the songs that we used to sing um, that talk about uh, eating, does anybody here remember the song, Come and Dine, The Master Calleth, Come and Dine? Okay, let's not sing them all. <laughs> but Amy could get you up here and do a gospel sing with a bunch of them. Tell me another song that talks about eating, feasting with the Lord. He brought us to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. Right. There's a lot of uh, hymns and choruses and songs that we've um, used over the, the years and that have been written. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of them in God's word um, about eating. And um, I think that there's some interesting things to talk about in Revelation chapter 19. But before we get into that today, I wanted you to just kind of use your imagination. OK, Um Use your imagination and put yourself in the uh, sandals of an ancient Near Eastern person that lived back in the Bible times. I know you've probably imagined and Sunday school helps us and us reading through God's word and Bible stories for kids. That helps us kind of imagine and put ourselves there in that place. But think about yourself in the shoes of one of those ancient Near Eastern people and think about them always needing to travel. They didn't have cars. They couldn't get to a lake house that was only an hour and a half away. They would have to walk for days to get there. In fact, um, a lot of it had to do with travel, whether it was on foot or by animal. And whenever there were, they were traveling through a place, having access to food and water, just like today in some primitive, primitive cultures that still exist, um, it's a matter of life and death. Um, I think, and this is not me judging you, it's judging me, I think many of us could go a couple days without food and we'd still survive. Can I get an amen quietly? Yeah, nobody's going to shout about that. Um, but back then, if you were traveling, you were extremely thankful when you came to someone's house, a dwelling, a tent set up in the middle of your journey, you didn't know the person, but you were able to go and speak to them and they were able to offer you food and water. In fact, we may pride ourselves down here in the South about being, you know, southernly hospitable, but they're the people who came up with it first. Their hospitality was bar none. There was no other like that culture that existed over there where you could literally not know a soul in the city but show up and draw water from the well and people would come out to greet you and give you food. Today, if somebody knocked on your door this afternoon and asked you for food, you might call the cops. <laughs> like, we, we treat life differently today than they did back then. But... If a traveler arrived at their door, they considered it a duty and an honor to feed them, to, to water their animals and that kind of thing, to provide, to host them. It wasn't just a measure of good manners. It was a moral institution. In fact, you can find God's word codifying that into law in Leviticus and in Exodus, talking about being kind and generous to the stranger. And there's this phrase that keeps showing up throughout scripture that says this, because you are a stranger in a strange land. Yeah. 
It's the precursor, if you want to think about it, of the golden rule that Jesus then tells us about in the New Testament. Do unto others as you would have done to you, as you want done to you. And so we try to teach our kids that. And there's a good example all throughout a repeated pattern throughout Scripture of this happening. In fact, how many of you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? Just raise your hand at me. Okay, she. What did she do in the tent when she heard the message about her pregnancy? She laughed, the Bible says. If you go to Genesis chapter 18, and it's a great Bible story to read with the kids. um, If you go there to Genesis 18, you'll hear that story of Abraham. And the reason why Sarah is in the tent and not with him is she is preparing a meal for three sojourners, three travelers divine travelers who have arrived at their camp and Abraham sees them afar off, the Bible says in Genesis 18, and runs to them. He then goes and gets a calf and takes it to a young man that's part of his group and he says, kill this calf. He gets his wife to start making bread and cakes in order to host and give food to these divine strangers. I think if you read it in context, it's pretty incredible to know that it was a visitation by God and there was a meal prepared for him. Why do I bring this up? Because the Bible begins and ends with a meal. In fact, the first words of Jesus, or sorry, let me say this, the first conflict deals with eating. How many of you are looking forward to the holidays and all the good food that you're going to eat and then the resolution you'll make in January to lose all that good food that you ate, right? The first conflict in the Bible is over a forbidden food. God's first words, that's what I meant to say a minute ago, were an invitation to a meal, to eat. You can eat anything in the garden, not this. Jesus' first miracle was in response to a catering crisis. (laughs) Um, I've catered a few meals in my life, and there are some touch-and-go moments of high stress. I know Christine, she has done catering before, and there's probably others that have involved themselves in food service. There's this intense moment where, oh no, we're out, or oh no, it's overcooked, or oh no, the vegetables are mushy. By the way, Anne, I just want to tell you, I'm proud of your husband. You might, you might know this is coming, but we just got back from a men's retreat and men, did we eat well or what? This is not me patting myself on the back, but I mean, kind of, okay. He's holding up fingers. How many fingers is he holding up, Judah? Seven. Well, technically 10. He's just got three hidden. Okay. Four hidden, but this is fine. Seven. Sam was sitting there just enjoying this ribeye steak and this massive baked potato. And I walked by and I said, at the table, I, I didn't see any of the men had green beans on their plates. And I said, Sam, I said, where's your green beans? Do we need to call Ann? <laughs> and so I forced him, peer pressure forced him. And he said, okay, give me three. I'll, I'll eat three. <clears throat> but then he changed his mind. And I think he was going with seven because it's God's number or something like that. And he, he choked him down. He made it work. Here's what I'm getting at. There are moments in a caterer's life or in the restaurant industry that you have high stress. Jesus' mother was under a copious amount of stress 
part of this wedding that happens in a place called Cana. You can read about it in the New Testament. And she says, Jesus, we're out of wine. You've got to fix this. The party's not over. And now we're out of wine. And Jesus then turns water into wine. Now, I don't know about your stance on alcohol. I know Scripture's stance on alcohol. But I think it's pretty interesting that Jesus' first miracle involved solving this catering crisis. There's something to be said because meals and even the drinking of wine throughout Scripture are representative of a connection of people together. And there are moments that happen, a few of them throughout the Old Testament, and many that involved food during Jesus' ministry, and they're pointing us to something. The last act of Jesus before his death was to what? Share a meal with his disciples. He says something interesting inside of the context of what we now call communion. It's called in the old school, the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. But he does something interesting and he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until we're together in my kingdom. There's a prophetic promise issued at communion regarding a meal. Today we're going to read about the last meal, meals that are recorded in scripture. The apostle Paul gives instructions to the churches um, to have a regular meal together and remember the Lord's death. And that's what we call communion. It's a lot more significant than just a bread, a piece of a cracker and a cup of juice. It's a lot more significant than that. There is communion that is happening, the Bible says, with the saints of God. Because we're joining in this act together. And in God's presence, we're eating. We thank him for the meals that we have as well. And I find it interesting, Revelation 19, in the vision of the new world, there's going to be this massive, joyful banquet. It's, it's going to be amazing. Go with me there to Revelation 19. Last week, we um, got a clearer understanding of what the concept of Babylon is. I hope that you lived in victory this week over Babylon and didn't allow it to get its hooks in your heart, in your mind, in your life. It is a struggle to be sure. Can I get an amen? But after Babylon is finally and fully defeated, there's going to be a celebration. There's going to be a giant party. Um, I used to tell students in my CCA Bible class, Jesus likes to party. He does. He loves the celebration. He loves it when we're together singing, when we're sharing meals, when we're communicating one to another, when we're talking about spiritual things. He loves us doing that. Look at what verse 1 says of Revelation 19. After this, talking about the defeat and fall of Babylon in the previous chapter, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Let me just stop you there and say this. It belongs to no one else. That's what this is communicating. Verse 2 says this, For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! 
the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is a little bit of a strange scene that John is witnessing and telling us about. Verse 4, it says, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. When you say amen, that means so be it. So be careful what you say amen to, right? So amen, so be it. Yes, glory, honor, salvation, power, all of those things belong to God. So be it. Hallelujah. They're giving praise to God. And verse 5 says this, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. I want to point out a couple things in Revelation 19 as we travel through it this morning. Uh, you should notice back in verse 2 and 3 that it says that the smoke is eternal. There is a fire that will be lit that will be eternal. There'll be no break. There'll be no time off. There'll be no rest. There will be eternal punishment for the beast, for all those who have done evil, who have not gotten their name written in the Lamb's book of life, all agents of chaos and the forces of darkness, all of them will be demolished and destroyed, never to rise against him again. Amen? There's hope in these verses, but there's also a warning to us that we are to be those who are sharing the hope of God with those around us. Look at what verse 6 says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Every one of these uh, different uh, things, these statements have been made into joyful songs that have been sung in churches for years. I remember that song specifically, and I won't sing it for you right now, but for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. There's no one stronger than Him. He is almighty and He is reigning. Verse 7, Let us rejoice, exalt, and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. I remember hearing the evangelist Steve Hill preach many messages throughout his time at the Brownsville Revival calling the lost and calling the backslidden. If you don't know, God believes in backsliding. It's in his word. <laughs> Some of our friends in other churches and traditions may not understand that, but it's all throughout scripture. And Steve, night after night, would call for those who are lost and those who have backslidden. And he would say, come and make yourself ready. The bride has got to be without spot or wrinkle. Make yourself ready. The only way to do that is to submit ourselves to God, to submit our will to God. It says this in verse 8, It was granted her, talking about the bride, which is us, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There are so many nuggets of truth inside of just these few verses. No, your salvation is not established on your righteous deeds. But once you are saved, there is a mandate on your life to commit 
righteous deeds. Can I get an amen? So it says this, the linen that she's dressed in is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then John does something wrong in verse 10. And you're like, what? Look at what it says. It says this, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, don't worship me, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me just tell you something. True prophecy according to the Bible and according to what we understand as the gift of the Spirit, it will never exalt a man or a woman. It won't prophesy that you're going to have a great prosperous future necessarily with material wealth. But what it will do is always speak to the kingdom of God and to the one who is reigning forever. Amen? That's what prophecy is about. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're doing something supernatural and spiritual when we share our faith and the testimony of Jesus with others. The, mess, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the celebration of the joining together of the bride. Now, this might be weird. It, it can be weird for us as guys to think about um, because we're not a bride. Um, those of us who've been married... Uh, we remember that moment standing at the altar and the revelation of that beautiful bride turning the corner or opening the door of the church or walking through the field, whatever that case is. Think back to that moment. And this is the metaphor that we're to understand of the connection between us, ourselves, and Jesus. Now, this might be hard for us as men to wrap our minds around, but we can put ourselves in the shoes of the groom and remember what that glorious moment was like how many ever years ago. I think you all have the award for longest married, don't you, Brother Paul and Don? How many years? 64. Anybody else got 65? Do I hear 65? No. Let's give them a round of applause. 64 years. That's amazing. They apparently got married when they were 10 years old. It was different back then, okay? But uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, here's, here's what I'm getting at. There's a celebration that happens at the end of every, mari- uh, every wedding. And what is that? We call it a reception, right? Um, anybody remember your reception? You remember some people who were there or people who didn't show up or people that gave you great gifts or people that wrote you cards and like it, it's great to just take a moment and walk down memory lane and remember the details of how you experienced your wedding day. This is going to be orders of magnitude greater than anything you've ever experienced before. So the lamb is the groom. The celebration is going to include believers from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, the Bible says. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your social economic status. It doesn't, none of that matters. What matters is that you've given your life in submission to the king and now you've been invited to be with him forever. That's what matters. But people from every nation and tribe will be there. This is a climax to something called a motif that's throughout Scripture. 
So a motif to remind you, because we talked about this earlier in our series, it's a repeated pattern that happens. I've already given you a basic line of thought all the way from the very beginning, having to do with food, celebration, and feasting, and being in God's presence. In fact, you can go back to the Old Testament in Exodus, and you can read an interesting another encounter of a divine meal, a divine banquet, that's eaten in the presence of God on the top of a mountain with Moses, Aaron, two worship leaders and warriors, and the 70 group, the, the group of 70 that basically ran all of Israel up on the mountain feasting with God. God wants to be present with his people, and he's going to be present with them in the completion of our human history. This is pretty awesome when you think about it. Um, also, I think it's kind of cool, and uh, this is not my joke, it's some other southern preacher's joke, but this is how we know that Jesus himself is southern, because it's called supper. It's not called dinner, it's called supper, amen? Okay, can I get an amen? Tell me you're awake this morning. There's another meal in Revelation 19 to look at. But first, the groom. Listen to the picture that John paints in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. There's another word there, diadems. It means crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe. That's been dipped in or sprinkled with blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. What an image this is. And if you were a believer in the New Testament church then. And if you're a believer now and have been for any period of time. All of a sudden I begin to think back to the words. The opening words of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Verse 14, it says this, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses too. Verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule, or another way to interpret that word is shepherd, them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? He is worthy of our praise. This is going to be a magnificent moment in heaven to see the revelation of the groom coming for his bride to be united. It's going to be amazing. He is our victorious warrior and he will never be challenged again after he defeats the the eternal enemy he's been facing. So eternal peace in God's presence is obviously um, in, in the passage. The bride being united with the groom Happily ever after is actually possible. Can I, can I get an amen? Because it's possible with God. Happily ever after is going to legitimately, really, actually, literally take place. 
This is the hope that we have. Now here comes the second meal, which you don't hear people who write prophecy books about Revelation talk about. It's a strange one to be sure. Are you ready? Dive into verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun or in the light of the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God. Stop there and listen to me for just a second. The marriage supper of the lamb is a different thing. It is a celebration of the uniting of Jesus and his church, which is Jesus and all of his followers. God gives us that perfect image of what marriage, what a a day of a wedding looks like in order to say this is the uniting moment and this is the celebration. Now, on the flip side, there's going to be a second meal, and this one is called the Great Supper of God. And you may not have ever even ventured far enough or further into chapter 19 to read, but it's wild. Kids, I hope you're ready. This is a wild story in the Bible. You can ask your parents all about it later. Come, gather for the Great Supper of God, he tells the birds that are flying. Verse 18, in order to eat the flesh of kings... The flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. There's something powerful about the image there. I'll get into in a minute, but I'm telling you, the supper of God is going to be intense. And when we say that, we are saying that the secondary supper that is happening is a day of judgment on all of God's foes. Now, this is metaphorical in some regard. It can also be literal. Uh, just depends on how you interpret the scripture that birds are going to peck and eat the flesh of these individuals that are listed. It says, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with it. The false prophet who was on his behalf had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21 says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Jesus, the one who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds had their fill of the flesh of the enemies of God. Now, you might say, this is kind of strange. Like, I I get it, John's having a dream. I've had some wild dreams. Now he's seeing all the birds eat all the enemies of God. Where is he, like, how did God line this up or give this to him? It is unquestionable that this is a final defeat of the forces of darkness and every agent of chaos and the beast and the false prophet and all who followed him. But there's something interesting to point out. And that is this, that the two meals that are there represent two sides of the same coin that is called, and you can do a word study on this, a phrase study on this throughout your Bible, the day of the Lord. You'll hear the prophets of old in Micah, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in all of these places talking about the great and awful or great and mighty day of the Lord. And the image that they give is a moment of celebration 
that happens when God is united with his people, when he finally gets his wish, I will be their God and they will be my people, but also it's a day of judgment for those who have stood against him. I say, like the psalmists say, as well as in the, New, in the Old Testament, in the story of the Exodus, let God arise and let his enemies not just be scattered, let them be demolished, destroyed, annihilated, gone forever. Amen? A final judgment is being rendered in the supper of God. Go with me to Psalm 74. It's an interesting place for us to land. And I will say this, if you're taking notes or if you want to put a note in your phone and go back and read it at some other point, read all of Psalm 74. I'm only going to read a few verses today. But also read Isaiah chapter 24 and Isaiah chapter 25. They, they have a perfect image of what the day of the Lord will look like for you. So Psalm 74 is a really interesting psalm. Uh, how many of you remember the series we did on prayer earlier in the year? A couple of you? Okay. Y'all remember me talking about imprecatory prayer, which is the prayer that like God get my enemies kind of prayer. Like you can pray like that and there are Psalms like that. Today we're going to jump into one that sounds like that. In the first 11 verses, a guy named Asaph, he was a worship leader and a songwriter. He's given into the temple of the Lord by David during David's reign, uh, in the house of the Lord, I should say. And the psalm is a pretty brazen reminder to God. This is, um, that's the best way I can put it. It's a brazen reminder to God because Asaph in the first 11 verses says this to God and leads people in singing this song, take your hand out of your pocket and come to my rescue. Kill my enemies. In old language, it says, take your hand out of the fold of your garment, Lord, please, and come rescue. But he's saying, God, what are you doing? Why, why are you allowing this wickedness to be pervasive on the earth? Why are you allowing your people to be persecuted? And Asaph says to God in no uncertain terms, get up and take charge of this moment. Look at what it says in verse 12, though. He is convinced and moved to hope after saying, God, what, what are you doing? Why don't you show up? Look at how he turns 180 and he says this, Yet God, my king, is from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. So he's doing what David told himself to do. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Doesn't matter what it looks like. You can't withhold your praise from God. It does, listen to me, this is not meant for me to be a, a harsh statement to you. It does matter to you what your life looks like. It matters to God, the circumstance and the situation you're going to. But that is not the determining factor of whether or not you worship Him. You need to worship Him in darkness, in dark days... You need to be ready to worship Him in a prison cell. You say, Pastor, you sound like those preachers in the 80s. I'm telling you, it still bears repeating because you don't know the day or the hour that the persecution will rise. So you had better be praising God, not just on your great day when you got a bonus or got a promotion at your job, but you better praise Him when there's zero in the bank. 
Why do we do that? Because we're stupid? Because we're crazy? Because we're insane? No, we do it because our heart holds on to hope. The hope of a God who is working salvation in the midst of the earth. He's doing it for you even now. You're sitting in a service today listening to a message about His Word. God is busy. He's not up there sleeping. He surely does not have His hands in His pocket waiting to strike. He is working on your behalf. Somebody needs that hope today. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Look at what verse 13 says. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters. All the kids shout, Amen! Come on, we're talking about sea monsters. I think we did that last time y'all were in Family Sunday. God has broken the heads of the sea monsters. Read Daniel chapter 7 and tell me why there are heads, plural, in chapter 19 of Revelation. You'll find out very quickly. Why is he talking about this? He says, you divided the sea by your might. This is the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Verse 14, you crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You fixed the boundaries of the earth and you've made summer and winter. Why in the world does he go from God, I don't see you moving right now to surely you have delivered us before because he, Asaph, is going in a direction saying, because you've delivered me before, I know you will do it again. So then as we look at that in light of Revelation 19, and let me just remind you, the metaphorical creatures of Leviathan and Behemoth that we talked about in the Revelation series, they're earlier in the series, those creatures represent chaos. When the Israelites were coming to the edge of the sea and God parted the sea in order for them to go through, listen to me and stay tuned in for just one more minute. When they went to the edge of the sea and God parted the sea and they got to the other side, surely the song of Moses in Exodus says, and the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea. The Egyptians suffered defeat that day as an enemy of God and an enemy of his people. Now, just use your imagination again. I don't know about you. I don't think human bodies naturally just sink to the bottom. In fact, I've watched way too many murder mysteries and uh, documentaries to realize you got to do something to get it to stay at the bottom. Are you with me, Miss Sandra? You understand? Okay, so here's, it, I'm not trying to give you 10 ways on how to do that, but what I'm trying to do is this. Imagine being a children of the Israelite people. They've gotten to the other side. They're camped out. They know there's a buffer now. God has made a dividing line and said, you are my people. I'm taking you to your land. And what is behind you is gone and lost. And I've defeated that enemy. Surely with the hundreds of thousands, possibly in some estimates, a million Jews on the other side, outside of slavery and on their way to a promise, they were camped out and they could see over the next few days bodies of the horses and the riders washing up ashore. Asaph reminding himself 
the birds feasted on the carcass of the enemy, then leads us in back into Revelation 19, where God surely will pick apart every part of the enemy and he will experience a final victory for good for all time. If you read the rest of that psalm, Psalm 74, he finishes out the psalm by saying, let God arise. Let him rise up and take his cause seriously because he's got to come to my rescue. So here's the deal. God has won many battles and he surely will win the battle that you are facing right now. But he indeed will win the war at the very end. And that's the hope that we have. The death of chaos, this is an interesting subpoint. The death of chaos in the moment of the Exodus represented what? It represented a new creation. I am making a people. I am sending them into a land. There's significance in why we do water baptism. We are leaving the old behind and walking into the new. And there surely is something important to be read about God's defeat over the enemy in Revelation 19. Because in the very next chapters, we will be in a new creation. We'll be in a new heaven and a new earth. The old will have passed away. And he'll bring us into a new Eden that will never be destroyed. This is the God you serve. Amen? Um, Here's the takeaway today that I have for you. It's a single focus takeaway. Live for the king. Live for the king. There seems to be a theme that has run several weeks now. We talked about Babylon and removing the hooks out of our lives last week. There's this idea in Revelation chapter 19 that those who are part of the bride of Christ, those who are the true believers, will be dressed in fine linen, pure white. There's all of these images of purity. But yet us as believers, we have places that are soiled, that are dirty, that are dark. I want to encourage you to take a bold step And to cleanse yourself from what the Bible calls unrighteousness. Say, well, pastor, I can't do it myself. No, you can't. You've got to do it with God's help. Amen. But the Bible says that we should confess our sin. I don't know about you, but there is this idea in the Christian world that you only confess your sin once and then you're good. You got your golden ticket. You're headed to heaven. I've heard that a million times before. But the testimony of Scripture is different. Paul tells the believers in various churches, confess your sins. He actually says something strange in the New Testament. The, The wording is there that we should confess our faults one to another. And then you'll be healed. There's power in confession. So don't write off those Catholic brothers and sisters who have prioritized confession. I tend to think that that might be a missing element for us in our private little American Christian homes and lives where we just have a private relationship with Jesus and we just don't tell anybody about it. I'm preaching for the church down the street, but it's fine. I think we need to confess our need for him. 
You, you might not have something crazy, immoral this week that happened. You might have just had a moment of anger or something. But whatever it is, keep your heart. And children, kids, listen to me. Keep your heart softened to the voice of the Holy Spirit who wants to tell you when wrong is wrong and when things are not appropriate or not okay. He wants to lead you and guide you in all truth. And grown-ups, us, college students, grandparents, everything in between, married for 64 years, the Holy Spirit still wants to speak and help you. He wants to guide you to the place of purity and holiness. So can you close your eyes with me today? We do this before communion. We examine ourselves. Paul is pretty clear that we should examine ourselves so that we don't receive judgment from God. So examine yourselves in the presence of the Lord today. Prayer team, would you step out? We want to pray for you today, regardless of whether it's a health issue, a career choice, a issue in a relationship, marriage, family, whatever it is. We want to pray for any need that you have. But if you're here today with eyes closed, if you're here today and say, I want to live purely for God and Him alone, would you just lift up your hand? Just make that commitment before the Lord today. God, you see these hands, Lord, of our willing hearts being lifted before you. God, I pray that you would cement that in our hearts, that we would hide your word in our hearts and not sin against you, that we would walk in your way and in your path. Lord, surely that we would be your people who are ready for you to return to take us to be with you forever. God, I pray that you would be with Celebrate Church and help us, Lord. Help us to be the people who share you with others this week. If you need prayer for any reason, I encourage you to step out to either side. We've got people available to pray for you. And if not, then stay where you are and just join in this last worship song. All on the altar Surrendered again Freely I lay down My everything